It's a real privilege to be here, actually, in more ways than one. I'm alive. Thank the Lord that my heart seems to be quite strong, getting stronger each day, I hope. But um, it is a real privilege to be here. I had a phone call with a possible date of October the 2nd, but it hasn't been confirmed in writing yet. That's to see a urologist. But that's only a consultant without any action, I think, still. Pray for that, please, and that that appointment might be forthcoming and things will start to move in the right direction. But my heart is good, I hope. Certainly trusting in the Lord for it, anyway. So I'd like to talk to you about um, two things that surround um, my heart attack, really, today. It might be a bit disjointed, but to me it all seems to flow through. So I hope um, we can learn something from it. So let's pray. Um, I was just thinking just before I came up how powerful God's word is and I pray now Lord that your word would be powerful to us this morning uh, that nothing of me will come across but everything of your word Lord and that you would challenge us today and that your word will accomplish what you want it to do among us we ask this in Jesus name and for his glory Amen okay now it's two months believe it or not since I spoke to you 28th of June Much has happened in my life since then, and as I said, I'd like to share some thoughts and feelings and attitudes that I've experienced before and during my illness. I know that a number of people in the fellowship have gone through things like trials and tribulations and sickness, so I imagine that some of what I experienced will be familiar to them, to some of you in other words. Just a bit of background, Um, I had my heart attack on Friday the 3rd of July. And at the beginning of that week, I couldn't have felt any fitter, really. Weeks previous to that, I'd been leading a more active life. I was going for bike rides um, three times a week, uh, swimming once a week, and I was active in a friend's garden, um, chopping down some fir trees for them. Uh, This person themselves had a, a health problem. I'd recently shed about seven pounds in body weight, so I was feeling quite good. On Monday of that fateful week, Um, I was enjoying a bike ride through the uh, country lanes of Finch Hampstead, thinking about my relative fitness and contentment with life. I was enjoying my retirement. I was feeling blessed to be a member of a fellowship where I had seen the Lord Jesus work in many miraculous ways. I was confident in serving the Lord, but still desiring a deeper relationship with him knowing that temptation and the things of the world kept me from seeking his faith as often as I should. Ironically, as I approached my 68th birthday, which would have been in two weeks' time roughly from the 3rd of July, um, I couldn't help recall my father's death from a massive heart attack at the age of 71 years. This was quite sudden. Um, He'd not had any serious heart problems before, but he just had this heart attack, collapsed and died. Now, to my shame, I believe that I felt, as I thought about him and compared my relative fitness to that of my father when he was alive, I felt a sense of pride and that a heart attack would would not be my lot so early in life. Friday evening of that week proved me wrong. 
Now, um, during and after my heart attack, I've been crying out to the Lord for healing and mercy, praising him for his deliverance, praising him that I'm still here. Um, but initially, I found it very difficult to pray for others. And this was probably, well, pray for others, read God's word, study it for any length of time. Probably because it was immediately after the heart attack and I was still in hospital. And if you've tried to read your Bible in hospital with all that's going on, if, you, if you've ever been in um, that situation, uh, there's noise, especially in a, um, a heart ward, the, the gongs and the bells are going continuously. So it wasn't conducive to study. But I did, found it, I, I did find it difficult. However, during that time, I couldn't help thinking about the parable of the rich fool, which is found in Luke's Gospel. And you might like to turn to that now. It's Luke 12, verses 16 to 21. Luke 12, 16 to 21. Can everybody hear me okay? Yes. Good. So verse 16. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, For this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be? which you have provided. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, I'm not saying that that parable was wholly applicable to me, but I saw certain sort of um, characteristics, if you like, certain things which I believe the Holy Spirit was talking to me about. And I remembered, um, I suppose, firstly, that whatever we are, Whatever we have, it all belongs to God. What we have is lent for our use, and we are stewards of the Lord's goods. When Jesus shed his blood upon the cross, he redeemed us from our life of sin and self and gave us his spirit that we may be new creations. We were purchased by his blood. We now belong to Jesus. Um, you might like to look at this um, little um, couple of verses from uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9, 19 sorry, to 21. This is what Paul says that, to the Corinthians about our bodies. It's a familiar verse. One Corinthians six verses 19 to 21. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price? Therefore glory, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So that was the first thing that I thought about, that we are really totally... Um, belonging to God. Secondly, 
and this is the thing that really spoke to me, is that our times are in God's hands and not our own. We can't even say what will happen tomorrow. I felt that I was not generous towards God with my time. In the parable, the rich fool was not generous towards God with regard to his possessions, but was content to take his ease and eat, drink and be merry. I realised that our time, our possessions and even our very lives belong to God. Everything, our time, our talents, our possessions, our lives. So how can we be rich towards God? I found a few verses that might help us. James 2 verse 5, you can look at it if you wish. I'll wait for you if you want to find that. James 2 verse 5, 5, we can be rich in faith. It says, listen my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and the heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Sorry, heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. So we can be rich in faith. We can be rich in good works. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1, 1 Timothy 6, verse 18. He was talking about people that are generally wealthy, perhaps people like us in the um, middle class belt of Surrey. Chapter 6, verse 18. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. And then this one is perhaps not so clearly applicable, but I thought that we could be rich in Christ. And in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, The works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatsoever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now I thought that these verses were really about the promise of God's Holy Spirit working in our lives and enabling us to display the attributes of Jesus, such as grace, mercy, comfort, strength, in a nutshell, becoming more Christ-like. Now, that was the first thing, really, those two points, I suppose. And um, moving on to the next thing was um, the result of an email that Koshi sent to me via Tom when he found out that I had the heart attack. Uh, The email was an encouragement to me, and I hope um, we can all be encouraged as we look at a section from uh, Peter's first letter. So I'd like you to turn now to 1 Peter 5, and we're going to look at 5 to 11. 1 Peter 5, 5 to 11. Koshi had um, prayed about this, and I think that um, he sent this and... um, Another section that we're going to look at quickly, um, I probably haven't mentioned it in my talk, but um, about being uh, sifted as Peter was. We'll come to that later. So 1 Peter 5, 5 to 11, we read, 
Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, stand steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a perfect, establish, strengthen and settle you, to him be the glory and the dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Uh, first of all, I want you to look at the background to this letter and its context for those to whom it was written. So the opening verse of this letter, um, if you want to flick to um, chapter one, we're going to look at a couple of references from chapter one. But the opening verse of the letter tells us that the author is Peter the Apostle. Some have claimed that Peter was not educated to the standard shown by the composition of the letter. Uh, you remember that it says about Peter and the other apostles that they were uneducated men. Didn't mean to say that they were thick, but they didn't quite the, um, the ability to write decent Greek or whatever. Anyway, Peter himself, in verse 12 of this letter, sorry, in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 12, you might like to flick back to that if you want to read it, says that he has written by Silvanus. Now, Silvanus, or Silas, as he is sometimes referred to, probably acted as Peter's secretary, with Peter effectively dictating and Silvanus polishing the grammar and the language as he wrote. But generally, the author is accepted as Peter. The date of the letter is put at AD 64, either shortly before or shortly after, the fire of Rome, which was started by Nero. Again, if you want to look at this verse, it's chapter 5, verse 13. We didn't read this. Peter says that he writes from Babylon, which is probably an alias or a code word for Rome. And we shall see the reason for this in a moment. So I'll come back to that. Now, the great fire of Rome had killed many citizens and many more were homeless and hopeless and started to show their bitterness towards Nero. So to defeat these hostile murmurings, Nero used the Christians as the scapegoats and blamed the fire onto them. This in turn led to a time of severe persecution for Christians and spread to places mentioned in, going back to chapter 1, verse 1, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. These were all places that had heard the good news of Jesus through the preaching and testimony of either Peter or Paul. So the recipients of Peter's first letter were the persecuted or displaced 
persecuted and displaced pilgrims, indeed, of 1-1 to 1 verse 1, who comprise mainly Gentile converts, but also some Jewish believers. And the word dispersion used in chapter 1 verse 1 seems to be used in a non-technical sense. That is, it's not meaning the scattering of Jews from Israel throughout the world, but referring to the spiritual pilgrims, the strangers to the earth, in this um, particular case, the Jews or Gentiles that were converts of Peter and Paul. So coming back to the word Babylon, it was um, probably used as a code word for Rome and could have been Peter's way of trying to protect Christians from further persecution. Okay, moving on then to the aim of the letter, it was to strengthen and encourage the Christians in their suffering, in their persecution. And amid this escalating persecution, Peter impresses upon his readers that living an obedient, victorious life in Christ under duress can actually evangelise a hostile world. Throughout the letter, Peter enumerates the many blessings and privileges that are bestowed upon believers in the Lord Jesus, but reminds them that the world will treat them unjustly. Their basic problem was twofold. To live for God in the midst of a society that was ignorant of the true God. And it was also their immediate future. The church was experiencing an increase in the conflict with the world. That's the world system. But God would provide the grace to enable the community of the faithful to grow into maturity. That was Peter's message. Now, how do we apply this to our lives? It may be said that what goes around comes around or nothing ever changes. I believe that this twofold problem that I've just highlighted for believers in AD 64 is very much with us today. Do you disagree or do you agree? Okay, good. So, in that case, everything that we read in this letter, we can say realistically applies to our own lives today. We need to live for Jesus in the midst of a society ignorant of the true God and we need to grow in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ until we reach maturity in him. In other words, to live the victorious life. So let's read this passage once again. And then we'll look at the meaning in a little more depth. We'll look at each verse and see what that says to us. So going back to 1 Peter 5, verses 5 to 11. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, fast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. 
But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now just to set the scene for this passage, in the first four verses, which you can look at quickly, Peter exhorts the elders to shepherd the flock of God, serving willingly and eagerly, not lording it over them, but being examples to the flock. And then in verse 5, he begins with a call for younger people to submit to their elders, but continues, note this, by calling all Christians to be submissive to one another and clothed with humility. The quote at the end of the verse comes from Proverbs 3, verse 34, and is also used by James in his letter, chapter 4, verse 6. This warns believers who are lacking in humility that they risk forfeiting God's grace. Humility is literally loneliness of mind, an attitude that is that one is not too good to serve, not too good to serve. We should be humble. In the ancient world, humility was not considered a virtue. Today, humility is not considered a virtue. Clothe yourselves with humility is similar to a slave putting on an apron before serving. And of course, it reminds us, if we know our Bibles, I'm sure we all do, of the Lord Jesus girding himself with a towel and washing the disciples' feet. The duties and joys of elders and the submissive are summarised by the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 17. I'll just read this for you. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. That's telling you what to do. Um, for they watch out for your souls. That's telling the elders what to do, isn't it? And as those who must give account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. I don't want to sound high and mighty there. I hope I don't. Verses 6 and 7, although, although mentioning humility once again, I believe are all about trust. We are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. In the Old Testament, God's hand symbolised both discipline and deliverance. Um, quite an extreme example of discipline can be seen from a verse in Job, chapter 30, verse 21. Job was defending himself um, before the Lord and he cries out to God, but you have become cruel to me with the strength of your hand you oppose me. An example of delivery and possibly also discipline as well can be seen from Ezekiel's prophecy concerning God's restoration of Israel. This is Ezekiel 20 verse 34. He says, I will bring you out from the peoples. This is the Lord speaking. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, Sorry, with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. The lesson here is that God will always accomplish his sovereign purposes. And we need to trust that he knows best and be patient even through testing times. 
And I wanted us to look at this um, particular passage because I think um, it's um, a lesson to us all. Let's look at Paul's thorn in the flesh. I think it's a great example of how we should um, approach trials and tribulations and things. Uh, we're looking at 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10. If you look that up, we'll read that together. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10, about Paul's thorn in the flesh. He had this marvellous um, experience and vision and revelation, but he also had lots of um, persecutions and distresses. So 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The whole destiny of Christians, whether it is suffering or glory, is God ordained. God will lift up the suffering, submissive believers in his due time. I'm still looking at verse 7. And in casting all our cares upon him, again we need to trust him for knowing that what he is doing in our lives is the best for us. We may have discontentment, discouragement, despair, suffering like Paul or whatever. But Jesus cares for us and he will sustain us. Now, coming back to uh, verse 8, this is 1 Peter 5, 8 again, we're back there. Uh, Peter recalls a call to believers which he made at the beginning of his letter in um, chapter 1, verse 13. Be sober. Be sober spiritually includes the idea of steadfastness, self-control, clarity of thought and moral behaviour. The sober believer has the right priorities in his life and is not, to use an appropriate opposite, intoxicated with the temptations and allurements of the world system. Peter also calls for vigilance. The devil and his forces are always looking for opportunities to overwhelm believers. Just think of Judas, how far he fell, having been with Jesus for three years personal relationship for three years. The devil tempts, persecutes, discourages, sows discord among us, deceives and accuses. Perhaps here Peter was thinking of his own experience in which Satan had sifted him. You remember I mentioned this earlier. And he had failed to watch or be vigilant. This comes from Luke 28 verses 31 and 32. The Lord Jesus said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, I have prayed for you, the Lord Jesus has prayed for him, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Isn't the Lord good? 
Now concerning Peter's watchfulness or lack of it, let's go to Matthew 26 and look at the account of the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, 37 to 41. Might like to turn that up. This is surmising. I'm not saying that Peter did think of his own experience. It's all scripture and it's all good. So Jesus took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And how weak we see. Um, I finished reading because he found them asleep again. A little later on, we need to be sober and vigilant because the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Back to the Peter letter in verse nine, we see our answer to the wiles of the devil is to resist him steadfast in the faith. And of course, you immediately think of uh, the spiritual warfare passage from Ephesians six verses 14 to 18. Paul exhorts the Ephesian church to put on the armour of God. I'm going to read from um, verses 14 to 18 if you want to follow it. Ephesians 6 verses 14 to 18. How we defeat the wiles of the devil. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now again, coming back to Peter, he reminds us that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, every one of us will face trials and tribulations of sorts. Moving on to verse 10 in the letter of Peter. Verse 10 is all about hope. While we may suffer as Christians... God is working in us to produce strength of character. In this world we may suffer, but we will share in Christ's glory. He will perfect us, establish us, strengthen us and settle us. In chapter one again of this letter, Peter spoke about um, faith being tested by various trials and loving the Lord Jesus, whom we had not seen And writes in verses 8 and 9, this is of chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, 
the salvation of your soul. And that brings us nicely to verse 11, which is a brief doxology in praise of Jesus. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So to conclude and to live the victorious Christian life, from Peter's letter here, lots of other things as well, but we need to practice the following. From verse 5, we need to be submissive. From verses 5 and 6, we need to be humble. Verse 7, we need to trust in the Lord. Verse 8, we need to be sober and vigilant. Verse 9, we need to be steadfast in the faith. Verse 10, we need to remember the hope to which we've been called. And verse 11, and perhaps this is the most important of all, we need to bring our worship to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, that you dwell within us. We are your body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, individually and collectively. Lord, give us this uh, perfection and this strength that Peter speaks about in his letter. That we may be able to be as you want us to be, to resist the devil, to be able to um, bear with these trials and tribulations, to be able to witness for you and to be able to share our faith with others. Help us, Lord, we pray, to glorify you. In Jesus' name we ask. Let's pray for Brian. Let's all join together, one voice before the Father. My grace is sufficient for you, God told Paul. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Father, we lift up our brother Brian to you. We pray, Lord, you know the needs of this body. Minister to him. Lord, he has surrendered his life to you. Lord, minister to our brother. Release him from all discomforts and bring him into all the fullness of Christ. And as we just read, to the glory of Jesus. Teach us how to bring all things to the glory of Jesus. It's not what happens to us, Lord. It's what happens through us. Teach us that. Thank you for the lessons we learned today. And Lord, imprinted into our hearts what it is, the power of submission. For there is no other way. To trust and obey is the only way. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.